0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hey, what's up? This is John Norris and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, actually we're starting on time today, 12, yeah, yeah. yeah. to about 12.45. Uh, actually, next week might be a problem, going to Germany next week. Last time I was in Germany, we did Cooking Issues live from uh, a street corner in Germany. You want to you see whether we can do uh, the <laughs> live German Cooking yeah, Issues again?
2: Yeah, yeah more, more off the wall than a street corner.
1: Well, I mean, like, look, honestly, if I'm going to do it, I probably have to do it in <clears throat> the hotel with Skype. Otherwise, I mean, like, we were just lucky that my phone didn't get cut out or I didn't get beat over the head by some sort of angry, uh, you know, ex-East German. <laughs> uh, last time I did it, but uh, we love the the angry ex-East Germans, by the way. It's no <laughs> offense. Calling all of your cooking questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So, Stas, uh, last week on the show, we had uh, our friend Ariel from UC Davis and... Brooks Headley the, the the pastry chef that more people need to know about from Del Posto restaurant mm-hmm. uh, he got a call or a question in uh, asking about the seven course vegan tasting menu that they do at Del Posto Nastasha made her vegan face, which, by the way, uh, now, now I, I can relate to you all. She would not let me take a picture of it. Literally, like, I, I pulled up the camera maybe eight, ten times. I caught her once as she was exiting the vegan face, but uh, I couldn't get the full vegan face on camera mm-hmm. because she refused to let me uh, get it. But if you've ever seen uh, uh, either The Sopranos or uh, <clears throat> Steven Van Zandt on his new show, uh, Hammer, his angry... <laughs> His angry gangster face scowl, like the the kind of bulldog frown, that's pretty much that's pretty much the vegan face right there. I so agree. you can it's just it's pretty
3: popular. I see even on iTunes one of the reviews was referencing the vegan face. And really? it's, it's blowing up. Real and, well, and I suspect maybe Nastasia can't even make the real vegan face anymore. No,
1: I can. Well you well, well, can see it. Me. It's when she doesn't mean to do it, that's when she right. did. So it just like happens. you could see her true reaction to the <laughs> vegan lunch. It's like I don't need to actually ask her, I just look over and see you know, is, is Stephen Van Zandt sitting next to me, or is Nastasia sitting next to me? Wow. And, you know, that's basically how uh, how you do it. So, uh, by the way, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to get probably in big – I'm about to get in big trouble with uh, our good friends over at Del Posto, Mark Ladner and Brooks, because <clears throat> here's what they said. They actually enjoy making the ve- – they said, first of all, don't publicize the, uh, the, the vegan thing. Thank God our cadre of listeners is loyal, but, you know, we're not – you know. Well, whatever. We don't have enough visitors to blow up Del Posto, right? Right, right or wrong. Right. So, so I am not going to get in trouble. Well, see. <clears throat> well, we'll see. you will find out. So, here is what they said: um, Any good cook likes a uh, likes a challenge and likes a, a set of constraints uh, in in which they can work and try to get new ideas to try and push their skills, push their talents, right? And this this could be anything. Like, so when we did the uh, museum uh, event last year. Uh, also at Del Posto, uh, you know we pushed the bartenders and the cooks into areas they wouldn't normally uh, work by giving them a set of constraints you're going to work with you know this set of ingredients or this time you know th- this time or like you know Nils we gave fad diets etc cetera, etc cetera. and and uh, without exception every single cook and bartender who worked at that event took uh, the challenge in the exact way that we wanted to and used it as an opportunity to do something uh, creative and interesting. Wiley, in fact, put the dish that he did there, the bone marrow, he put that on his New Year's menus. Uh, cool. <clears throat> Brooks did his uh, artichoke thing, I think, for a while. So uh, it, it's, it's a great thing for any cook to do, uh, maybe not all the time, but you know, uh, on occasion to take a challenge, uh, take a set of constraints. And cooking something vegan is just at a set of constraints. And so the guys at Del Posto uh, really liked uh, they really, they really like cooking this kind of thing, and it actually is on the menu all the time. They have a customer they said who comes in quite often, and whenever that customer comes in, they revamp the vegan menu for them, so it's not the same every time it comes in. This time, unfortunately, also macrobiotic. Which, listen, <laughs> you know, I find it very difficult to not offend uh, offend people, but <laughs> not eating nightshades is crazy. No tomatoes. You're going to go vegan now. You're all of a sudden you're not going to have tomatoes, potatoes, or eggplants. I mean, please. You
2: can do without the eggplant, you
1: said. Well, you said, and I agreed. Oh. You said, no, 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 and I agreed. Said I said, do you like baba Ganoush?" And you said no. Oh, I said, do you, like, do you like anything with that kind of... You know? she said, no, she said no. Doesn't like bacon barta. Uh, she likes eggplant parmesan, but mostly for the fry, the mozzarella, and the... Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, anyway, uh, one thing I'll have to say is that, is that they should have shifted into liquor earlier.
2: <laughs> oh, yes. I, I emailed the... Uh, what's his name and told him
1: that? What's his name? It's a nice shout-out.
2: Jeff Porter. There you go. See?
1: (laughs) See how much nicer it is to use somebody's name instead of... I
2: was like, Mark.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So anyway, I'm here to report. Uh, Oh, uh, so they said don't popularize it because even though they like cooking it, uh, and this is a challenge to uh, vegans uh, out there, anyone with... uh, like that. Di- There's wine glasses right here, Nastash. Oh, hello. Uh, they, to, to with dietary things out there. You have a uh, reputation among chefs as being difficult human beings with which to work. And uh, so the, the, their issue isn't that they don't like cooking the menu. Their issue is that in general, to, gener- to generalize, <coughs> the customers who order it can be problematic because they tend to not be people that are interested in food primarily. They're just, there to get some, you know, to, to have a meal and they have these restrictions in which they're working but the food isn't the primary focus and cooks prefer to cook for people who like food. Fair? Right. And that's why they told us not to publicize it. Yeah. Am I saying that without getting anyone in yeah, too much yeah, trouble? Yeah.
2: You didn't use the exact language of what they called those people. <laughs>
1: what? Now, now they're those people. Yeah, the, All right, what? The vegan. All right, so you say it then. No, no, no.
2: I'm not going to say
1: what they say. They did not insult vegan people. Okay. Anyways... <laughs> My point is, it was very good. Unfortunately, it was also macrobiotic. Which, to me, I mean, someone please call in, and tell me why macrobiotic stuff is not a bunch of hoo-ha. Anyone, anyone, call in. I know there's a lot of people out there who love. They've macrobiotic
2: You had two shots of green, of green stuff.
1: I yeah. did not drink. Actually, we make a very good drink, green drink at the bar. Yeah. Not macrobiotic because you can't have distilled distilled liquor, uh, but. Uh, yeah, those kind of like wheat grassy, like, you know, one, one of the drinks, no offense to Jeff there, because I think he was, they bought it and they did it on purpose just to shaft me, tasted like I had latched my mouth onto the uh, exit chute of a lawnmower and was riding around the grass, uh, you know, with a lawnmower attached to my mouth. But the meal itself uh, was very, very good. What do you think?
2: It was good for what it was. See, what the hell is that? I would not go there and get it. Like, people who want that get what they want, get, get a great meal. Right?
1: Well, I thought, I mean, I thought it was a really good meal. Look, Nastasha, first of all, is prejudice in this sense. When she goes to an Italian restaurant, if she doesn't leave with her gut busting open, <laughs> she's like, it's not Italian. Italian food's supposed to be hearty. It's supposed to be a hearty food. You know what I mean? And my point is, it's not necessarily it's just, the it's case.
2: It's so sad to go to Del Posto and not eat a bunch of pasta. It's, well,
1: it's sad. But, but, but so my point is that you... You have a preconceived notion of what Italian should be and of what del posto should be, so you can't divorce yourself yeah, right. from that notion and just look at the food at which, as it was presented. Sure. What about, you know, I, I thought that the flavors were very, very well balanced. There was nothing that I thought was lacking. There's a, a lot of use of uh, high umami um, and like pro- protein based things that weren't meat, like uh, nutritional yeast, which was quite good. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of mushrooms uh, brought into it. A lot of uh, very, you know, uh, reduced root vegetables, things like that. Things to, And I thought everything was was delicious. I thought the textures were good. I thought it was well-balanced. The one thing I don't, didn't like were the uh, raw snap peas on it because even though everyone, everyone finds them delicious, except for me because of the raw the raw starch taste, I do not like uh, pea shoots either. And I might be the only person on earth who does not like pea shoots And uh, because I don't like that raw... I don't like that raw taste. Part of the problem with me doing that raw diet last year yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, anyways, so I thought they did an amazing job. The wine job. was
2: good. When we finally got wine, that was, I liked it.
1: Oh, yeah. We had an orange wine that was, I guess, uh, you know, which we'll, we'll research more. I didn't research it uh, a lot. And uh, Nastasia at that point was, was dying for a drink. Speaking <laughs> of that, <laughs> speak, speaking of dying for a drink, we have uh, a wine here. You're going to have to uh, translate this. What's uh, land of, what's uh, Chianti? Don't know Thought you spoke Italian Now you forgot Italian too I, can't. I don't
2: know We can look it up
1: <laughs> Oh my god Anyway It's called Passetti And it's Pecorino Now Pecorino For all of you out there Obviously means goat So is this wine Jack Is this wine literally Passed through a goat Before it's put in a bottle I can't confirm Or deny that <laughs> Yeah You can't I, But I, I don't know I'm excited to try it they, It's we, from the barter house though.
3: Remember those guys
1: uh, I was about to say These are from our good friends At the barter house And uh, I've said this before It's a
2: province in Italy Really? really? There you go. Land of that
1: product. Yeah, is the product. For, yeah. uh, for, yeah.
3: for people who've been listening to the show forever, they're the same people who brought you Booza.
1: Booza! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're also bringing you wine passed through a goat. This is a, uh, a white wine. What's the, what's the grape? Is there a grape called goat? What the heck is this? And it. So here's the deal. So the barter house, for those of you that uh, – they haven't sponsored our show in a while, mainly because uh, Modernist Pantry has been sponsoring our show for a long time. But we like the folks at the barter house. And what they are is a, a kind of a, a, like a, a specialty importer that imports wines, kind of unusual and interesting wines. So they're not going to carry a lot of the wines that you know that we're familiar with. Uh, but uh, one, of the, uh, one of the good ways to see whether or not you should try a new wine in the store, and it's not just a bar house, find a, 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 you know, an importer, someone who brings in wines uh, that uh, you like, and in general, these people choose wines that they like that are interesting. So if you don't know the producer, or you don't know the grape, you don't know the style, sometimes looking at the back and seeing who's bringing it in is a good indication of whether or not it'd be something interesting to try. And it's, uh, I think it's something that we don't do enough in wine stores. People don't think about the importers or the houses that choose wines or the curate you know, the selections that they're going to bring over. But I think it's a good way to try a new wine. So we're going to, uh, Nastasia and I, because it's so hot, we're going to have this uh, white wine that's been passed through a goat. Uh, Passetti doesn't actually mean, doesn't mean pass. Passato means pass, right? So what does Passetti mean? This is their last name. Oh, that's the name of the people?
2: It's a a, uh, husband and wife team, Franco and Mima.
1: Mima Passetti? (laughs) So they, so, well, hand me my glass so we can try this stuff. And we should get to some actual cooking issues here in a minute. (laughs) Otherwise, this is going to be a show just based on uh, nonsense and drivel. Let's try it. <laughs> no offense to nonsense and drivel. Wait, what do, you, what do you think, Stas? It's really sweet, huh? It's not actually sweet. It's just not, like, hyper dry no. and crisp. Mm-mm.
2: It's fine. It's fine. What do you think, Dave?
1: And What would you pair it with, Stas? <laughs> I
2: would pair it with, uh, with actually, with pecorino cheese. Uh, you're such a loser. You know what?
1: <laughs> Whatever. That, that brings me to another thing. Before we get into real stuff, you know, we've been, there's been a lot of play recently uh, on... Recently. It, like uh, it, on our show and nowhere else <laughs> on um, on um, the taste pairing hypothesis and this hypothesis where uh, you know things that have similar molecules not necessarily similar. Nastasha apparently believes if you name something after a goat it should go well with goat cheese. It's it's stuck in my head,
2: but yeah, I think it would go well, don't you?
1: I, I think almost everything okay, goes so well with pico. I like pecorino well with- I don't know, like you know, it's one of those things that has enough acidity to it that uh, it could go well with a spicy or like an Asian thing. It's not going to get totally cut down. It's not – the structure of it isn't like a red that's going to get obliterated. So I could could see it with that Asian thing. What the hell was that? What the hell is that under your breath Asian thing? She <laughs> just said we'd go the like thing. thing I'm it. thinking about it because we were at uh, Poc Poc. Uh, that was a New good York, Poc Poc Brooklyn. Was. Yeah. So now we've become a review show where we're reviewing <laughs> restaurants that we've been to over the past year. <laughs> but week. We,
2: only, we only went to two in one day. It's like we don't do anything together. We don't go out to restaurants. We never yeah, thank
1: God. <laughs> thank God. But uh, uh, so my wife and I were at the table next to uh, Nastasha, Mark Ladner from Del Posto, Brooks. And her friend from Juilliard, Pat, Patrick Posey. Uh, and uh, so uh, this was – this is Andy Ricker's uh, – not Rick Turr, the comedian. Andy Ricker, the uh, famous uh, Portland – formerly Portland, now Portland and New York-based uh, chef who uh, does Thai kind of a, in a different way than I've ever had it in, in New York. and Because I've never been to Thailand, so I can't call it authentic. But extremely delicious, extremely great uh, – Food and I, I'd only ever had uh Pak Wing, which is his takeout joint in uh, the Lower East Side, and his food at events. So this is the first time I got to go to a, basically a full scale restaurant uh, of his, and I was uh, frankly blown away. I thought it was great. And um, what do you think, Stas? Yeah, it
2: was amazing. And I hate Thai food.
1: So. Well, okay, when Nastasia says she hates Thai food, those of you that have ever listened to the show knows that uh, they know that Nastasia's crazy, basically. <laughs> uh, here's what she doesn't like about here's when she says she doesn't like Thai food. Here's what she means I don't like lemongrass, and I don't like coconut milk.
2: Right?
1: Peanut sauce, yeah. And peanuts. I don't know. Was, so what?
2: So there wasn't a lot of that in this food at all.
1: Right. Anyway, but uh, that's not my point. My point is, is that Nastasha's crazy and that this restaurant was great. For instance, the thing that, uh, like, uh, that blew me away is that he served an extremely spicy uh, beef dish. I forget the name of it. Uh, you know, kind of ground uh, meat. And next to it was just a plate of herbs. Hoibs. Uh, that were and these herbs they look like you know a plate of herbs and I, I I started to taste them and they were unlike any herbs you'd ever tasted like when he came over I, I, I basically I had the waiter call him over because and Mark too was like uh, you, look if you're in the business that I'm in or the market you're not, no one's supposed to be able to in New York City hand you a plate of herbs and have the first four things you taste off of be unlike anything that you've ever had and completely foreign to you such that you have no idea what the hell's going on that just doesn't happen you know what I mean? Like one or two new ingredients, whatever, or uh, new ingredient, but something that's just totally foreign to you like that is crazy, right? Didn't you agree with that, Stas? Mm-hmm. And uh, like this one had the kind of tartness of a sorrel, but like a completely different taste. I want to use that in a drink. He get, like Andy gets it some guy in Florida, some basically, I guess, who smuggled seeds from Thailand to Florida and is growing these uh, kind of insane Thai herbs in Florida and then shipping them up. Uh, to uh, Andy and he, he guess he gets some on consignment from this guy I'm going to try to get some for the bar for Booker and Dax uh, but it's just uh, just cra- crazy stuff good stuff I recommend going uh, okay enough with the restaurant reviews right. oh one more piece of news from Booker and Dax land and then I guess we should go we to uh, yeah Booker and Dax it, well it won't be ready for about a month but we now have Booker and Dax the company not the bar has its own space in the Lower East Side so Look out for us coming in uh, doing some cool stuff in the Lower East Side, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a small space.
2: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's a storefront, which is awesome. It's
1: our own space. So those you can stop by, like, wave vegetables in, at Nastasha in the window, and she can make her face for you in about a month. And with that, call your questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718
2: 497 2128 Cooking Issues. <laughs>
1: By the way, today's show is going to be brought to you by The Barter House. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Jack just told me. Oh, I haven't here. Yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't pay attention. Nostalgia's like, I don't know. I was playing Tetris. Anyway, <laughs> uh, before I go on to some real issues, I want to talk about um, the, this uh, book, Taste Buds and Molecules, about the flavor-pairing hypothesis. So I've been basically saying for a while that I think that this flavor-pairing hypothesis is bunk, whereby, you know, you take, uh, you know... B- foods that share specific flavor compounds, and therefore you can decide that they actually go well together. And it's, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a technique that's gotten a lot of play recently, and so I kind of thought I'd go buy, and I, you know, I, I bought it, uh, a book called uh, Taste Buds and Molecules, written by Francois uh, Chatier, and I think that's how he pronounces his name, I don't know. He's Québécois, uh, but he's done a lot of work in France, and uh, he is uh, like a, a true master sommelier. Like, nobody argues; the man knows his wine. And uh, <clears throat> sometime in the early to mid two uh, thousands, he um, started working on this, working on the idea of uh, flavor pairing, looking up what components were in a wine, the aromatics of wine, and a lot of that stuff is readily actually available because a lot of studies have been done uh, on it due to wine quality issues. And so a lot of uh, food studies have been done on it. Uh, and also uh, what uh, when those same molecules appear in foods and has built a structure of uh, tastings and, and basically food pairings Based on uh, what you know, what he calls his, his research into those into those things, and the result uh, is this book, Taste Buds and Molecules, which also has like a lot of crazy kind of graphical elements. And so, <clears throat> I bought it thinking that I was going to uh, hate it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are many things about it that uh, that I uh, disagree with, but I have to say that he, uh, I mean, he clearly. Uh, you know, understands, he clearly, you know, from everything I've read about him, I've never had dinner with him or anything, but has a a very good palate, right? So this isn't, in other words, it's not something where someone is just saying, hey, look it, uh, here's a bunch of stuff that I saw on on a piece of paper, and therefore they're going to go well together, even though I haven't developed a palate. He's coming at it from the direction that I think is a good one, namely, uh, he spent years and years developing his palate, Right, his nose, his palate, his senses, and then after those years, uh, then used uh, these kind of pieces of research as a further tool to uh, f- to get inspiration in areas he hadn't already looked. Basically, to, to, to ha- something to help the light bulb or the chime in his head say yes, these two things would go well together, and to give him kind of the confidence to put two things together that wouldn't ordin- ordinarily be put together. And so, uh, to that extent, you know. Yes, I think it could be used as a as a valid uh, valid thing, and I actually ended up liking um, like liking like what he was saying more than I thought I would. But uh, uh, on the flip side, I mean, and I think this is part of the kind of like the you know. Because the book was published in French first, that that kind of writing—it's a little more kind of florid, and it kind of takes things a lot a lot further than I would like, and kind of makes much more sweeping comments about uh, you know what he's doing and the the, the concepts behind it. Than I would I would like and so you know when I'm working on the cocktail book I got to guard against that too not making these kind of sweeping statements my problem is when any of these things become sort of dogmatic or almost become a a religion the way you know what I mean the way that people kind of treat the the new concepts but uh, interesting book. so there's there's that. That's my last word on on, uh, on the flavor pairing uh, hypothesis uh, for today. Now, on to some uh, questions we come in. Hello from Osaka, Japan. We're going to Japan soon. Nastasha and I going to Tokyo to work in the Park Hyatt. We're going to be working there for four days, right? Mm-hmm. Plus a fifth press day. Yeah. And I'm hoping to get the – like I want the most butt-kicking Japanese stuff. I don't want any stuff that I can get here – in the States. I mean, I do. I want to see, like, how much better all the stuff that they say is better there. I want to get all that when I'm there. But I want some stuff that you cannot get here. I mean, you know what I mean?
2: hmm You with me on this? They're taking you. They're taking us to the, the market next Sikiji to it. and the, and oh, the other there's one. there's a big fruit market next to
1: it. I'm going to go bonkers. Yeah. And they're, with their credit card? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, man, I'm a dangerous person with someone else's credit card. <laughs>
2: That's as soon as you arrive. We're going straight there.
1: So I better sleep. I can't sleep on planes. I'll have to drink like eight loads of espresso, just make like an an hour trip to the bathroom, and then uh, then we'll go off into it, right? Okay. Hello from Osaka, Japan. I have two questions. I am interested in buying a refractometer to use in the field as well as in the kitchen. Some things I would like to be able to do are measure the salinity of a brine to know when it has reached equilibrium, measure the sugar content of produce in the field to know when to harvest, measure the sugar quantity of produce to determine which provider has the best product. Can one refractometer be used to measure salinity as well as bricks? Do you have any recommendation for refractometers? Are electronic bricks meters better than optical refractometers? Okay. Uh... Here's the thing. I've used both uh, uh, electric ones. We have uh, one manufactured by the Hanna Corporation uh, as well as manual ones. The <clears throat> for the field, I mean the, the thing is you don't want to be caught out in the field with one and have it break. I mean the, the, the optical ones are fairly bulletproof. I mean Nastasha did break one of mine. She like shattered the uh, – the, I don't know how the heck she did it. She broke it. No one else has ever broken it. She broke the little flip down screen that goes on. Uh, the handheld ones, the ones that are not um, electronic, are uh, a lot cheaper. They're like 30, 32 bucks to get the ones on eBay. They work fine. You need light, you know what I mean? And you need to be able to see through the product somewhat to be able to do it, uh, you know, to use them properly. Uh, those ones, I've never seen one that will do both salinity and uh, bricks. However, well, you know, you can get um, just uh, a bricks one. And which measures sugar content, and uh, get one that is for salinity, and they're fairly small and they're fairly cheap. So you can get two of them, right, for much less than the cost of one good electronic one. I really like the electronic one for just speed of use and not having, especially in the bar, to worry about light. You do have to, with the electronic ones, hold your hand sometimes over the measurement uh, device so that you don't get errant light problems. If there's too much ambient light, uh, you can't. Uh, work with it the electronic ones are better for just crushing up some juice even if it has particles and throwing on because they're not as thrown off by that and they're easier to read you can read something in an electronic one that there's a really cute kid looking in through our window by the way <laughs> she's pressing her nose against it and we're waving to the window uh there's a uh she's wearing some sort of purple flowery thing it's yeah very cute anyway uh the uh so the electronic ones are better at measuring things that you couldn't necessarily – because in, in a handheld one, you have to be able to flap the glass down, uh, the, the, the plastic piece that goes over the reading prism. You have to be able to flap it down and get good contact before you can get a good reading, and you don't need to do that with the, uh, with, the with the handheld electronic ones. Uh, I do think that the handheld electronic ones might break a little easier. The HANA ones that I have are only calibrated for bricks, right? You could – you could, and mine is – what I like about mine is that especially if you're going to be using something for a long time in a lot of different fields and you might be measuring juice one day uh, or or fruit one day and syrups the next, is that mine? my electronic one goes from zero bricks to 85 percent bricks, which is really nice. And there are handheld uh, optical ones that have a very wide range, but the problem is is that – those wide range ones it 's hard to get a very accurate reading because the scale is the same length no matter what you do, and so then you have the issue of not being able to uh, to, to discern fine differences in bricks now there are also triple scale. Manual uh, refractometers. I've never used one, uh, and those apparently you can get the accuracy you want in in several different scale ranges, but uh, they tend to be more expensive. So instead of like thirty two dollars, you're talking about a $100, 150 dollars, and you can get a decent uh, uh, electric one, electronic one, on eBay for uh, not eBay on uh, Amazon or whatnot for you know around that price. What do we pay? Two. 260. Maybe. 260 for a zero to 85. Now, there is a company, I don't have theirs, unfortunately, called, uh, I believe Spare is the company, but you can look it up, that has um, different. Uh, different ranges in the same refractometer and they will actually program three custom ranges into your refractometer for you so you could get a zero to 85 bricks uh refractometer at the same time get a salinity meter and all it's basically doing is changing the calibration within the unit so that you can measure using the same instrument another thing you could do is use your bricks refractometer and then carefully make a uh things of the proper salinity, right? Measure what the bricks is on it, and then you can hit that number every time, even though you're using a brick scale. So you can correct bricks to salinity, uh, and uh, it's hard sometimes to find the published papers for that on the internet, but you can also do that. Um, The last thing I would caution about refractometers in general is that you're going to have a Uh, a lot of people make mistakes on refractometers and they think that you can measure uh, bricks and other things in mixed medium. Remember, all that the the refractometer is measuring is uh, what the difference in uh, refraction is as light is passed through uh, a liquid. So what happens is different liquids have different refractive indexes. They bend light a different amount. And a refractometer is measuring uh, typically how much uh, your liquid bends light relative to water. And so... um, they can only, uh, what Brix is measuring is dissolved sugar, but anything that changes any solute, anything that's dissolved in it is going to change it. So if you have alcohol, which changes uh, the angle of refraction, right? If all you have is alcohol, then you can use a refractometer to measure how much alcohol is in the water. If all you have is alcohol and water, if all you have is sugar in water, then you can measure how much the uh, sugar, how much sugar there is in the water using a refractometer. If all you have is salt in water, same. If you have salt and sugar, you cannot because there's no way to figure out what the, what uh, each component is doing to the refractive index independently unless you can measure one of the variables. Same thing with ethanol and sugar, which is why you can't use a refractometer to measure uh, something like Quantro, uh because it's got both sugar and alcohol in it. So uh, there are, you know, limitations to what Uh, or fractometer, can do for you because it's only measuring one quantity, how much uh, uh, light is bent as it travels uh, through uh, your medium. So... uh I mean, I hope that helps. But, if you know, if I could go back, because the spare one's only like an extra $50, but it wasn't on Amazon, I would get the multi-range uh, electronic bricks unit that does zero to 85, the wide-scale one. I think it's spare, but, you know, whatever. The S-P-E-R, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I would get there one that, that does the full range from zero to 85. That's going to do 99% of any of the sugar work you want. and and they will also do a custom scale. So if you wanted to do, I don't know what you're doing for a living, but let's say you're a a distiller or something, and you also need to measure, or a wine fermenter, and you also need to measure glycol. You could have a glycol scale in there so that you can make your glycol solutions, which you would use for anti, when you're using like chilling, if you have a chiller and you need to do glycol, you could put a glycol scale in and a salinity scale. So you could choose any three scales. If it was me, I would have bricks, salinity, and uh, ethanol percentage uh, for distilled spirits. I would have those three on it, and then you'd have one refract, and you'd be good forever. But you might want to back it up with uh, a manual one. The manual one, most people get a 0 to 32 bricks if you're doing fruit. Uh, and uh, much higher refractometer, a much higher bricks level if you're doing um, anything like sugars or, or syrups. Because remember, simple syrup, one-to-one simple syrup is running about 50 bricks, right? So you can't measure it on a standard zero to 32 bricks uh, uh, refractometer. Bricks is basically just percentage of the solution that is sucrose, right? Uh, and if you're doing a two-to-one simple syrup, you're up at 66 bricks. And so you it can, it can get, uh, you know, zero to 32 is of limited use in a bar, Right. Right, Mm -hmm. Saz? Yeah. That's why you bought the zero eighty five 85 for us. Yes. And we're quite happy with it, yes? Yes. Another piece of equipment we have at the bar we're very happy with now is we bought uh, best $65. That's not true. I'm just lying. It's a good $65. Not the best $65 I've ever spent. The best $65 I ever spent was on my wife's wedding ring. Boom! (laughs) Kidding. Uh, 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 He's not lying. Yeah, I'm a cheap bastard. Uh, But... (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, it was a good $65. Uh, I bought a zero to five milliliter, um, basically, micropipette. And it's just super accurate. So we use it to dose... All of uh, our uh, like our, our wine-finding agents, salt and Kaidosan. And also, uh, when we're making small batches of things to correct things for salinity and whatnot, we can add small amounts that we can then reproduce when we scale it up. So I really like the micro pipette. Uh, and we stole that idea from our friend, Tony Conigliaro, not the famous dead baseball player. From, uh, you, you know the story of Tony Conigliaro? Yeah. Very famous. Tony C, they call him, because also Americans. Oh, in, in America, it's Conigliaro, by the way. So Tony, the baseball player, was Tony Cunigliaro, not Tony Cunigliaro, the bartender, right? But he was like one of the, like slated to be one of the best baseball players of all time. Was, in fact, very good. Played for the, uh, for the Sox and got he crowded the plate all the time and got hit in the head with a beaner and like almost like i think it put him in a coma he's in the hospital for a long time never the same never wow. the same by the way what Nastasha is actually doing the the work she's doing is looking up pictures of the chauffeur from Downton Abbey on uh, i'm look i looked over to see like what kind of thing she's looking up about the event i'm doing in germany that we're going to talk about after I the have next it, break I have it. and <laughs> she's looking up she's looking up the chauffeur kind of like the, the least sympathetic character on Downton I Abbey know, because not the least sympathetic, but no, I mean, no, no,
2: no, no, it's not. No, no, star- no, what? It's it's what the stars look like out of costume. That's just,
1: okay. But you've already seen that.
2: I know, but I was
1: crazy. This is what I deal with people on a daily basis. All right. The second question from Osaka, from John, is are there antioxidants that are fat soluble as well as temperature stable up to temperatures around 180 degrees Celsius? Failing that, what is the best practice when storing fats to keep them in their best condition? Two applications I'm interested in are reusing very expensive tempura oil and keeping schmaltz without oxidizing. Any thoughts? Schmaltz. I love schmaltz. Chicken fat is delicious. Uh, I've never been to one of the old school restaurants in um, New York that has schmaltz on the table, like one of the old kosher restaurants. Because you can't have butter on the table, because mm-hmm. you can't serve butter in a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. You can have schmaltz. I have, I freaking love chicken fat. Um, so what what can you what can you do? Well, uh, I I meant to, I forgot that this question had been asked when I saw it last night, so I didn't look up the specific things that are added. But typically, uh, if you buy uh, commercial fry oil, they have a, an antioxidant um, in them. Uh, some sort of, like, vitamin E tocopherol-based thing that's fat-soluble that prevents oxidation in the oil. Uh, and that is very helpful and stable up to frying temperatures. Uh, I'll, I'll try to look it up during the break, or Nastasha can try to look it up now instead of looking up uh, Downton Abbey's before-and-after pictures. Uh, but the... Um, uh, and, and that's why I say commercial fry oil is uh, much, much better than any of the stuff that we buy in the supermarket because uh, it lasts just a boatload longer and tastes a lot cleaner. They also, in commercial fry oils, do something that you can't do in a home oil, uh, which is they, they uh, specifically t- – and temper oil might be like this. They specifically tailor the fatty acid uh, um, mix in it to have uh, only those fatty acids that are fairly temperature-stable and oxidation-resistant. Res- uh, that said – Obviously, the things that cause oil to break down uh, most are if you get salt in the oil, which is you know, sometimes you know unavoidable, uh, allowing uh, burnt particles to stay in the bottom of the oil while you're cooking if you don't have a, a commercial fryer with a cold zone at the bottom, which tempura doesn't work that way, by the way, which is crazy, uh, but whatever. Uh, or um, <clears throat> if you… Um, So those are the main things. You also, like, it's best to use, and this again goes against the way I've seen most tempura done, but you really want uh, a very low surface area to uh, volume ratio on on your – on the oil because then you have less uh, air contact. You want uh, as little foaming as possible, so not a lot of like uh, a lot of high water stuff dripping in. Anything that basically is going to promote a lot, lot, lot of amount of oxygen getting into the oil. Also, clearly you don't want any uh, reactive metals like iron touching um, the stuff because that's gonna that's gonna mess with you. Uh, and you want to as soon as it cools down enough, filter it. And you could you could. Uh, You know, vacuum. You guys could vacuum pack it, or like put it in bottles and then like suck the air out of it to prevent any any sort of oxidation from taking place. Uh, But those are the kinds of things uh, that I would do. Uh, The the worst thing, though, I see breakdown on oil, especially when it's done in a home fryer, is temperature cycling, and there's just very little you can do to prevent temperature cycling except for, you know. The commercial fryers are really what's going to stop you from doing a lot of temperature cycling. Other than that, you could get an induction unit that keeps the oil at a relatively even temperature that has, like, basically a temperature controller in it that's, you know, keeping the oil tolerances fairly tight and then not overloading the oil so that you don't have to get the. you don't have to have as much of a temperature drop, so you don't need as high of a thermal input to do the instant recovery, and that's going to cause you to have less thermal cycling on your oil, and that's going to increase the, uh, the lifetime uh, significantly. In a home frying situation, it's crap floating to the bottom, burning and destroying the oil, salt, but most importantly, temperature cycling that is really killing your oil at a ferocious rate, uh, and those are the things I would do. I don't know about it. Are you looking up the, uh, the vitamin E, the tocopherol-based stuff? Or are we still on, on Downton Addict? No,
2: no, I was doing the Germany
1: stuff. All right, well, okay. So, why don't we do this? We'll take a commercial break and we'll see whether Nostasha can find that stuff on the internet. It's cooking issues. to cooking Am I back? Yeah. All right. So uh, it turns out that uh, I wasn't able to look it up over the commercial break, but we'll try to find some specific thing that you can go buy in a store to drop into your oil to add as uh, an antioxidant. So, Nastasha, what's this event that I'm doing in, uh, in El Germany next it's week? It's
2: called Academia del Ron, and it's a Havana Club event. And you will be there from your ride Monday morning. And you leave Thursday.
1: Well, I don't. I don't know that people need to know my schedule. What am I talking about there? We're
2: talking about yeast in alcohol.
1: Yeah. So here, here's the deal. So they asked me to do. Uh, they asked me to do this uh, event on uh, rum, and I said fine. But they, they, like I, you know, I feel like I spend a lot of time trying to become like well versed in in several things. But the effect of yeast on rum. Like, I can think of at least five other people that I know personally who know more about this than I do, right? Yeah. But yet that's what they wanted me to talk about. See, people make the mistake of uh, and – I'm not saying anything against it. But people make the mistake of thinking that I'm a scientist. I'm not. I'm like a gearhead cook that can read science papers, right? <laughs> so like, I don't feel like I'm the guy to sit there and talk to you about, uh, like, any sort of actual research that I've done or anything because it's just not the case. So over the past week and a half, I've read, I don't know, several hundred pages on the effects of yeast on different uh, – uh, uh, you know, on fermentation products. And I've learned a boatload about it, but I still am not an expert in the field on this. So what we – what I had to do was I just basically took a bunch of molasses. I couldn't get the molasses I like, which is Crosby's molasses, which is a – They bu- never got back to me. Those the, bastards! That email that you
2: were like—they never
1: got back. Yeah. Crosby's molasses. For any of you who have ever been in the uh, in the in northeast, New England, or Maine, Crosby's molasses is the one molasses that I've had. That you are like, my God, is that delicious molasses? Like I would pour that. You know how like you ever listen to Louis Jordan? You ever listen to Louis Jordan? Mm-mm. Louis Jordan. You know the song "Is You Is You, is you My Baby" or "Caldonia" yeah. or mm-hmm. "Beware." Any of those? Mm-hmm. That's Louis Jordan. Like big in the '40s. You know, kind of uh, kind of cocktail, kind of like you know. Like, you know, whatever. Like, uh, anyway. Like, uh, uh, musician. Uh, you know, musician. Anyway. Beans and cornbread, you know that song? Yes. Beans and cornbread, you know that? Anyway, Louis Jordan. So, uh, Louis Jordan. What the hell is I talking about Louis Jordan for? What were we talking about? Fermentation. Yeah, but how the hell did I get on Louis Jordan? Molasses. Molasses. So he's like, uh, in the Beans and Cornbread song, he goes, goes together like, hotcakes and molasses. And you're like, hotcakes and molasses? So who great. the hell would put molasses on pancakes and then you, and then once you've had Crosby's molasses you realize why but those dumb bastards from Crosby's they're up in Canada and by the way I love you Canadians but you're a lazy group of people just kidding just kidding <laughs> he's not <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, uh, but they won't distribute outside of uh, New England. We had no mailers. So I couldn't. So we
2: wrote them – well, you wrote them a nice email from me in response to how great their molasses is. Yeah, sell is it down sell here. Sell it down here. No response back.
1: Crosby's molasses is so delicious. Like when you – next time you're in Maine or wherever over there, up, up there in New England way, get some Crosby's molasses and tell me you don't think that's the most delicious molasses that you've ever had. I mean, I don't know. Maybe in the Caribbean, they maybe they have some delicious molasses. I don't know. But as far as in the continental US, it's the most delicious molasses I've ever had. Anyway, so we didn't use that. We used some sort of like molasses and we're distilling our own. I, distill, I fermented using two separate yeasts now, when you're when you're actually doing rum and you're using wild yeast fermentation, there, it's not just uh, Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae, which is the normal beer you know brewer's yeast, of which there's a bazillion strains, each of which have different uh, produce different flavors. Uh, but there's like uh, uh, I forget the names, of them, like schizo you know schizo Saccharomyces, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. There's like uh, there's like, there's a whole bunch of different yeast strains, like five or six uh, not strains uh, you know actual genus species, uh, and then a zillion strains, all of which produce different flavors. It turns out Most of the flavoral difference in a fermentation, a lot of the flavoral difference is due to um, the yeast, right? So think about it this way, Nastasha. If you've ever had – have you ever had wine grapes?
2: Yeah, like to eat?
1: Yeah. 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 Wine grapes don't taste like wine, Mm -hmm. right? It's very difficult to – like if you taste like a Pinot Noir grapes, you're not like, oh, I get it. Mm You know what I mean that all of the, like the, the most of the flavors that are in there in Pinot Noir are there as precursors right that, that you can 't taste, then the fermentation and the different yeasts that are used bring out the real character, so a lot of the flavor is due to the, due to the uh, the yeast it's just i don't happen to be an expert in that, but that's what I'm going to be talking about, and then, I think
2: people ask you to talk about these things because you're able to understand it and explain it. In an interesting and exciting way.
1: Well, that's very charitable. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, that's, uh, your, that's
2: your con- here, yeah. that special thing for the week.
1: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the one nice thing Nastasha is going <laughs> to yeah. say to me all week. So anyway, so over the course of the week, we're going to have to uh, go out and illegally distill the, uh, the molasses fermentation. By the way, molass- fermented molasses tastes horrible. This blackstrap molasses stuff tasted horrible tasted like iron. I was told by uh, our friend Chris who's opening a new beer bar in New York called Proletariat. Proletariat. Well, Nastasha gave the, the proletariat <laughs> face. She hates the vegans <laughs> and him, the tell people. Tell about
2: your MTV, uh, your MTV Belvedere drink. Did you guys talk more
1: about that yesterday? No. Do you tell me about it?
2: The Red Bull that you're
1: gonna make? Oh, Nastasha signed us up to do a Jersey Jersey Shore. For those of you that don't have the don't have like uh haven't been outside. There's <laughs> a show called Jersey Shore, which I actually haven't seen, but I saw the thing on YouTube where the guy punched the that oh, lady yeah, out. Yeah, you did. Yeah, what well, that's Snooky, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I haven't seen the show. Have you seen the show? Small. You bits. have I actually <laughs> watched an episode. This is serious. Like last week I
3: watched an episode for the first time. It's good. It's a funny show
1: Yeah It's a funny show I'm pro Well, one of our favorite lawyers is from the Jersey Shore Yes Vadim Good guy Yeah, good guy Anyway, um, so um, Nastasha signed us up to do an MTV party with uh, uh, Evan Freeman uh, And uh, it's going to be a Jersey Shore party And so Nastasha wants us to do a high-end vodka Red Bull
2: Yeah
1: Yeah, so we're working on it But I don't know what Red Bull I don't don't really know much about Red Bull
2: No, we need a We need
1: a We need to look it up yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll take that stuff up. Anyway. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, we got some shout out from John who asked the two questions on Osaka. He says, says, uh, Loves the show. Thank you. With so much, and this is a, in general about the world. Here we go. Uh, with so much knowledge, this is John talking. With so much knowledge being spread around, I don't think there's uh, ever been a more exciting time to be a cook. In Japan, it was commonly accepted that the price you pay to become a cook is your youth. That's kind of nicely said. Mm mm-hmm. hmm. Uh, in five years, I've been able to learn what would normally take ten, and on top of that, I know the why behind the how, which seems to be a very uncommon thing in Japan. Whoa, boom! I'm gonna have to have some talks about that when we're in Japan, huh? Uh, how, uh, behind the how uh, seems to be very uncommon in Japan. So here is a thank you for you guys and everyone else sharing what they know, and it's true, the, we would not have what's going on today without the increase in um, kind of sharing of information that's been made possible by, you know the. It's not it's, it, it is the internet, like obviously it's obviously it's the internet, internet. but um, I think it's other things. I think that um, and I, I've had some conversations with some European chefs, uh, especially in America, but also among uh, Spanish, just an ex- like this extreme desire to share what people know and to be generous with ideas that it, it is in the cook community. You know what I mean, yeah? You agree, yeah. But for instance, uh, Tim Rau, the, the Michelin star chef in uh, in uh, the Germany, which where I'll be next. To, hey, he's in Berlin. Maybe I should see him when I'm in Berlin. Anyway, he uh, he um, he said in Germany the chefs don't like they don't like hang out and give each other ideas. Weird, huh? It's too bad. Too bad. Too bad. Too bad. Okay. Hey, Dave, Nastasha, and Jack. Jack, you got the shout-out on this one. Uh, this is... Uh, f- uh, you don't want to know who it's from, Nastasha. You gotta look this up. Oh, from Tony Harrion from Mixing Bar in Brazil. Uh, I read a post on Alcademics, our good friend, uh, Camper English, the uh, blogger. Uh, I read this post on Alcademics about the production of Cointreau, because he visited the Cointreau distillery, that says uh, when they add water to reduce Cointreau to proof, the essential oils in the peel, because it's Cointreau's orange peel uh, distillation along with neutral grain spirit, cause the liquor to louche to get cloudy, like when you add water to absinthe. They centrifuge the quantro to make it clear again which I did not know uh, the same happens and this is uh, now it's, it's uh, Tony talking the same happens when we rotovap citrus peels and other spices and dilute it to proof other than the centrifuge what can be done to separate the compounds that fall out of solution when you dilute liquids with high concentrations of essential oils can you think of any other way to stabilize or avoid the precipitation or loose without the centrifuge uh, and then how good does your centrifuge need to be to achieve loose separation in G's or RPM uh, lastly, to make liquors in this fashion, do you recommend adding water to reduce the proof and then adding the sugar or use a weak sugar syrup or both at once with or without the centrifuge of the step? Love the show. Keep up, keep up the great work. Cheers, Tony Herrian from Mixing Bar in Brazil, which when I go to Brazil, we got, well, we got to find someone who will pay to get us to Brazil. And then after we do that, we'll vi- we will visit them. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one. By the way, uh, this is anyone who wants to get the Cooking Issues crew down to uh, Brazil. Keep this in mind. I don't know what it costs to, for a plane ticket down there, but uh, polyscience circulators are twice the cost <laughs> uh, in Brazil as they are here. So what we can do, if you want a circulator, right, if you can find some company to pay for us, we can buy the circulators here, bring them down uh, as personal equipment for the events, and then do a swap down there. Just saying.
3: And you might need help carrying them, so you know, I'm here.
1: Yeah, yeah, just saying. Yeah. Just saying, just an idea for all you people in Brazil. If you're trying to get around the tax problem of getting a circulator into the country and you know a company that wants to ship a bunch of tech knuckleheads down there to talk to it's them, a
2: thousand dollars a person to get down there. Which
1: that's about to see yeah. you break even yeah you break wow, even you're fast yes yeah. well uh, with that when it comes to getting nastasia <laughs> a trip Use to brazil blinding speedy blinding <laughs> ask her about toko what what's that crickets are in the background <laughs> jesus all right uh here's my feeling tony um I have this happen a lot uh, with uh, – I mean we do a, we do a, a distillate because Thai basil is like my, one of my favorite beverage uh, flavors. So we do one that's Thai basil, orange, cucumber, and, uh, and a little bit of cilantro. And that thing louches out and goes white like very quickly. I think it's uh, not so much the orange peel in that because we don't add a lot. I think it's uh, probably the uh, anethol, which is the same thing that's causing louching in a pastis because there's a good bit of that in Thai basil, You know that licorice flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, in that t- Taste Buds and Molecules book, like one of the interesting things is that there's a, a, a I think it's estragol is a compound that, that shared, that's in fennel. Uh, actually, one of those compounds is in apple to a certain amount. Maybe, it's, this is the thing. The, the book actually gave me some interesting concepts. Harold McGee and I, years ago, when we went to uh, Geneva, he, Harold McGee's going to be in town later this week. Harold McGee. Uh, we're going to eat sir Stroming with nils. Got to set that up. Um, on my wife's birthday, though. It might be problematic. Uh, the... Um, <laughs> Uh, so we had some apples that grew on the tree that had a huge fennel note to them and then the fennel dissipated very quickly but probably due probably due to that volatile molecule anyway so like that book actually brought up some interesting stuff in my head brought back some taste memories I had so anyway kudos to that whatever uh, uh, I, when you dilute them to proof they are going to loosh out um, even if you it, I've had ones that I've, I've done that too and then let sit for several months and they, they basically they separate over time as well uh, my feeling is, I don't know. It, uh, here, here's the thing: whenever I've tasted these, uh, these these things straight out of the centrifuge, I mean sorry, sorry, straight out of the rotovap. I love the flavor of them fresh so much that I wouldn't want to kind of I wouldn't want to change them. And I don't mind the I don't mind the the luching. I don't mind the pastis effect. I kind of like it. It's kind of a signature of. That you made this product, and that it has so much like of these essential oils in it that they can't be held in solution when the proof goes um, up. Instead of diluting to proof, I would I almost always keep my unless I'm going to serve it straight like an akavite. Uh, I almost always and that I, I've had akavites that go go white on me because we get so much uh, so much essential oil in them from the that. I almost always keep them at rotovap proof, which for us is between um, a buck and a buck twenty, so about sixty percent. And we keep it there uh, until we're about to use it and then let it loose out, and uh, it, it's more stable on, on, on the flavor. If you don't want to do that, I don't know how, I don't think it would take that many G's, but I think it would take quite a long time because the particles when you're looshing are very, very small. Uh, <clears throat> and so you have to wait for them to kind of coalesce, aggregate, and become larger before. You can get them to settle out, so I think probably centrifuging and time um, are needed. Another hard part about throwing in the centrifuge is that you remember these are these are oils and they float to the top, and so you. Um, that's my guess. It would float to the top, uh, and so when you spin them, you'd be in this position of siphoning them off the top or getting the stuff out of the bottom, which may or may not be a difficulty because they're not going to go solid if you freeze it the same way that I can do with nut oils or coconut oil. Uh, so anyway, so uh, those are those are my those are my thoughts uh, on that. Okay, uh, last question in because apparently we have to wrap it up because you know Jack's got other things to do, <laughs> other shows, yeah, other shows. Okay. Uh, Five. five fifth questions, apparently, today. Why do you number them? Because I don't ever do them in order anyway. Like, why put numbers on them?
2: What do you want instead?
1: I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. This does, people don't care. I don't know why I asked. Okay, Andrew writes in and says, uh, what is your... I have actually two things. Uh, what is your recipe for pressure-cooked mustard caviar? I cannot seem to find one online by you yourself. Thanks, Andrew. Here's my recipe. Uh, pressure-cooked um, mustard seeds are awesome. They pop like caviar. They're delicious. Even Nastasha likes them. She hates everything I cook. Uh, that's not true. You don't, I'm just messing with her because I can. Okay. Uh, first thing with a mustard seed, I use the yellow mustard seeds. I blanch them uh, quickly in a couple of uh, – like two two times or three times in boiling water for a couple seconds apiece to get rid. It does get rid of some of the pungency, so much so that um, you can almost get away with not pressure cooking, but it's not the same thing. We've done the test, right? Um, But it gets rid of some of the dirty, musty taste that I don't really like in a mustard seed. Um, That's why we blanch horseradish as well beforehand to get rid of some of that earthy uh, taste. Then you pressure cook them afterwards in straight, vinegar, I use distilled vinegar, I pressure cook them for between 15 and 20 minutes at second ring in excess vinegar, they're going to soak up a lot of vinegar, so you don't want to go light on the vinegar, then you drain them and while they're hot, you stir in, uh, I use white, you can use whatever you want, but I use white granulated sugar to taste, the sugar will dissolve in with the vinegar that's still on the outside of the mustard seed, don't want to add the vinegar beforehand, it's going to become a goopy mess, uh, add the vinegar after it's cooked and drained while it's still warm, uh, hot but preferably, and, uh, and just keep tasting it. And then you pack it in its residual juice. You can, if you save a little bit of vinegar, you can add a little bit in a quart container, and it lasts for a long time. So that's that recipe. And we have one other suggestion in before I leave because I'd be remiss. We had a question last week regarding uh, thermocouple probes, and uh, our good listener, Elliot Papineau, uh, called in a response and said, I use a dual probe alarm meter from www.thermoworks.com. Www.thermo- uh, uh, and it's a cool du- dual probe uh, thermocouple thermometer. Uh, and they have some cool looking probes. The probes aren't cheap, but the thermometer is. So there you have it. Elliot likes it. Tell us whether you like it too. See you next week, hopefully from Germany. Cooking issues.
3: can't get it straight.